0: Welcome to a very special bonus episode of EW's Game of Thrones Weekly. This is going to be a very fun podcast. We're not just talking about one episode this time, we're talking about whole seasons. We're going to look back at what we like best, and in some cases, what we didn't like so much about season six, and then basically spend most of the podcast speculating wildly about season seven, trying to figure out what we think is going to happen next. Uh, Along the way, we're also going to answer your reader questions, all these different things you've sent in uh, over this past week about what you think might happen in season seven, too. So we're going to dig into that. I'm James Hibbard, and I'm here with Darren Franich. Darren, your favorite episode of season six. Go.
1: Sometimes it would be cheating to choose a season finale, but this season finale of season six of Game of Thrones titled Winds of Winter, James, we talked about this on the podcast this week. I just felt like as an entertaining hour plus just a little bit of television as just an incredible work of artistry and of just production. I mean, each week of Game of Thrones, something happens that has probably never happened in television before because no show has been this big, has had this kind of level of production across you know all the continents we know about and a few that they've invented. But just the opening 25-minute sequence of Winds of Winter, I just felt like it was the show operating at such another level. It was beautiful it was cinematic it is cheating a little bit to choose Winds of Winter because to the extent that there have been kind of frustrations about the show over the last couple of years about some storylines moving at a certain glacial pace this episode it was just able to push everything forward all at once and even minor little notes in any other season finale the Arya reveal would have been the biggest moment and here it was like the 10th biggest moment and it was still awesome and somewhat unexpected and that was an episode Episode that reminded me of what I love about the show, of what I loved about reading the books when I was first reading them. So it, it's really hard for me to think about anything else speeding that. Again, I've already gone back and rewatched that opening sequence again. The music was good and kind of different, and Cersei's costume was maybe the best piece of costume design the show's ever had. Just There's something about when you see something like this operating at the highest possible level, and I, I was just so flabbergasted by it. So my pick would be The Winds of Winter, for sure.
0: Yeah, I really can't argue with that choice. And uh, by the way, you, you mentioned the costume. Uh, that costume was designed by Michelle Clapton, who was on the show for a while, then went away, and then they brought her back for episodes nine and ten this season, and they're very thrilled that she's going to be doing the costumes for the rest of the series. I was laying awake last night thinking about this. I was because I knew we were gonna be talking about it, and I kept going back and forth in my head. And I feel like the two obvious ones to choose are are nine and ten. I mean both the Miguel Sapochnik episodes were just so amazing. And plus, Sapochnik is such a fun name to say. I, you know, I, I just want to say it all the time now. <laughs> we just announced uh, the directors for season seven and Miguel isn't one of them. And like every other tweet is somebody angry that Miguel is, isn't uh, doing all the episodes next season, uh, let alone, you know, not even one. And I've gone back and forth on it and I have to tip it to Battle of the Bastards just because I don't think I've ever seen people so blown away by an episode in terms of the reactions. That was such a jaw-dropping, amazing accomplishment pulling off that battle. It's the biggest budget on TV, but it's still a TV budget. And we go and see movies all the time where we see these big summer blockbusters that have $200 million to spend. They spend two years making them, and the action isn't nearly as eloquent and coherent and involving and exciting as what was done in that episode. Well and
1: you know again just to call out uh, Miguel Sapochnik who just has brought so much to those last couple of episodes um, in your great kind of interview with him after Battle of the bastards he talked about the creation of the scene in that episode full of great scenes for me was John's uh, I believe that uh, Sapochnik referred to it as his kind of rebirth that sort of in- incredible sequence of Jon Snow being almost buried alive there were a lot of great shots in the season finale that I loved that were just great for their kind of like steadiness. And there was this aspect of almost kind of being this beautiful tableau. I'm not sure I really felt that journey on a cinematic level until that incredible sequence in the middle of Battle of the Bastards, which I think was not even planned originally, right, James? Wasn't that sort of something they came up with as they were filming the big battle scene?
0: Yeah, because they couldn't do what was originally scripted. Uh, they had too much rain and they were you know, at the risk of running behind, and so Miguel came up with that on the fly to do that, that rebirth scene where Jon Snow almost became a member of one of the the massive body piles that were being assembled there. But uh, l- let's let's move on to, do you have a least favorite episode?
1: I had some issues with the door episode.
0: Wow, that's a bold choice.
1: Let me just say very specifically, I'm not saying that was a bad episode of, of television. I found that that was one time that the show... It was doing something that I thought was a little cheap and which ultimately was a little... As I think back on how Hodor died, I find that I have more and more questions and not necessarily any answers. And that was the one time that the mechanics of time travel seemed to simultaneously really matter. But but also they sort of broke a lot of rules. And I have to point out too, James, this was the episode where it became clear that Max von Sydow was not necessarily going to be put to to fantastic use by game of thrones so i i have a few kind of real hanging chads left over from that episode that i i I definitely don't love it but i you know again this is in a season full of good episodes that's the one that sticks out to me is just not necessarily succeeding at what i feel like it was uh trying to do what about you what was your kind of least favorite episode or the episode that uh, didn't quite work for you this season
0: To me, the first uh, five episodes of season were just a rocket sled, and so were the last two. So I would probably pick Blood of My Blood only because that was an episode right after The Door and after all this crazy stuff had happened in so many of the storylines. And I think everything just had to hit the brakes and take a breather. So just structurally... In terms of where the stories had to go, that would probably be it. But it's not like I finish the episode going, oh, that wasn't a good episode. No, I thought it was a great episode. It was just, you know, you're comparing these amazing episodes to other amazing episodes, ultimately. Uh, what about uh, best female performance of this season?
1: So much great work being done by actresses who've been on this show for a lot of years. Um, but I, I really do want to call out uh, Gemma Whelan, who plays Yara. Slash, actually, her name is is Asha Greyjoy. We we we, we all know that, but you know we we can agree to, to call her Yara for the sake of the show.
0: Both your choices are going to be Greyjoys, aren't they? Just 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 to end the end the suspense now.
1: They are not. This is probably the only time that I'm going to mention the Greyjoys in this whole show. I think the show. Was very wise this season in being like, well, the introduction of a whole gigantic new setting story arc last season did not work out that well. So, as much as this was a season with lots of great joys, I think they were very careful about how much time they spent with them, which is to say not very much, which is totally fine. Um, but I, I do think that as we look to the future of this show, and we've just in the season with Alley lost so many long-running people, including, you know, someone like Marjorie, who was just such a central figure in, in the show, I get excited because Gemma Whelan, who's someone who's been on the show for a very, very long time, going back to season two, I just felt like, without necessarily having as much time as other major characters. She just has made Yara such a big part of the show for me. I think she she's the one part of the show that feels the most like the Greyjoy stuff that I love in the books, which is funny because her character is actually quite a bit different than the character is in the books. But there's just, you know, this great sense of Viking swagger to her combined with this great sense that She is both more badass than anybody else in the Iron Islands, but she is also able to see clearly that things need to change for them and that they need to become a different sort of power. To do all of that and to also make her character really funny and just a very appealing presence, you know, that scene between her and Danny in Battle of the Bastards was just so delightful. And so I, you know... As far as, like, doing a lot with someone who isn't necessarily a huge part of the show, she definitely kind of gets my vote. What about you? Who's your pick for best actress on Game of Thrones season six?
0: It's interesting you said uh, Yara because even the president of uh, HBO programming, before the season started, we're talking about how important the the female performers are this season. And he, like, singled her out as as well, which 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 surprised me for a network president to, to single out uh, an actress in, in a bit of a smaller role on a show. I'm split. On one hand, uh, I have to think about uh, Lena Headey, who has been doing amazing work on the show from the very beginning. And in some ways, we almost take her for granted at this point that when she's given complex, challenging scenes to do. She knocks it out of the park every single time. I am specifically thinking of the moment when Tommen made his ruling to no longer allow trial by combat. And just to watch her react to that was just so devastating and so much emotion and disappointment and shock and sadness going across her face. I mean, I mean, she's just uh, terrific. And this season, I think I really also have to single out to uh, Sophie Turner, who's, you know, been a character that, uh, you know, people are pretty apathetic towards, you know, the first few seasons. And they gave her so much more to do this season than I think they ever have. There's that scene with her and Littlefinger when she confronts him and just the icy stare down contempt and anger that she uh, and, and the hurt that she projected in in that moment, uh, was just riveting to watch. What about the guys?
1: who who kind of wins the the best actor prize for you in in Game of Thrones season six?
0: Normally, you always sort of want to say uh, Peter Dinklage almost by default because he you know, he's so incredible on the show, um, you know, has obviously won an Emmy for the show. The actor that keeps popping into my head is Kit Harrington. I just think that the guy has spent so many years in a show, having to do a mainly physical performance, doing a lot through action, doing a lot non-verbally, that he's become exceedingly good at non-verbal, you know, action-based performance. And this season, they gave him more to do dramatically than they ever have before. I keep going back to that moment when he was resurrected and comes back to life, and it's it's the beginning of episode three, And all of his shock and confusion was so impactful and and really registered so hard. And just his performance in Battle of the Bastards too, as an action hero, he is just at this uh, whole other level.
1: One of my big disappointments with this season, and it's not necessarily a disappointment where I'm kind of like, you know, oh, that was bad. It's just more sort of the, the quality of some narrative money being left on the table This is the one time that I'll bring up Lady Stoneheart, and then we never need to speak of her again, James, because it's very clear the show will never speak of her again. The interesting thing that the books play around with is this idea that, you know, yes, more people come back to life. Perhaps too many people come back to life, breaking George R. R. Martin's own sort of rule about not necessarily overdoing resurrection. But when they come back, they are very different, and they're very if not traumatized, then they are just less themselves than they used to be. And th- this was my own kind of machinery that I was bringing to it. I was excited to see what Kit Harrington could do with that because I do think that in a lot of ways you know, John Stowe on the page is a very internal character. On the show, he's very often been cast in the most straightforward kind of romantic hero fashion. He's so locked off from the politicking for the most part and is just so much, you know, he's so the hero against the bad guys up north. And I I was intrigued to see what would happen if there was not necessarily saying go full Dark Link and and become a bad guy, but just if, if there was any aspect of him that was changed. And it did seem like when he came back to life, he just had a much cooler haircut and that was pretty much but I, I did think this was a great season for him. As I was kind of looking over a lot of a lot of the great performances this year, one person who I really who I, I really wanted to call out, who much like. Lena Headey has been there since the beginning, does great work. Very often there'll be whole seasons where he isn't necessarily the focus of stuff. I really felt like in that episode that a lot of people didn't like uh, of the the great sort of Tully siege that wasn't, Nikolai Koster-Waldau, in the moment of, you know, that great dialogue scene with Ed Muir Tully, when it is simultaneously him in a very confessional mood that we don't often see but also him really kind of doubling down on becoming his father's son the 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 presence of tywin lannister is still felt it's felt in all of his children and the fantastic actors who play his children and you know it's never been more clear to me that one of the great tragedies of jamie's life is that after all of this He is becoming so the perfect son his father kind of always wanted tactically in terms of his use of power, in terms of just, you know, the way in which he can really get inside of people's heads. There's something very heartbreaking about Nikolai Koster-Waldau and the fact that you know he can just turn on a dime in a scene from playing a very imposing figure to being a very emotionally bruised little boy in some ways. He's an actor who I think in some ways he's maybe doomed to be overlooked just because what he does is kind of trickier.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. In fact, that Nikolai and Kit were going back and forth in my head for my choice as well, and I kept thinking back to that scene with Edmure uh, also. Uh, In which he just had that amazing speech, that amazing monologue, which uh, was really terrifically written, too. It just went so many, it it just took a very unconventional path and just seemed very organic. I'm still thinking that look he was giving Cersei at the end of the finale uh, when she was sitting on the Iron Throne. And you can't quite tell what he's thinking, but you know it's not that good. I was so struck,
1: James, I was thinking about this after our podcast, that look he gives her as she's sitting on the Iron Throne. One of Jamie's most vivid memories of the Iron Throne is a madman sitting on there and telling him, blow up King's Landing. And the idea that he, after living just a whole life, he's kind of come back around to suddenly there's another arguably quite mad ruler who finally followed through on the Mad King's plan to use all of those explosions. And that person is his beloved sister. There's just, there's a lot there that just, you know, you can really chew on and that I'm not sure that Nikolai Koster-Waldau, you know, certainly not the extent of Tyrion. He's not a, a, a character who gets a lot of speeches and gets to express those things. He just gets across so much with a look that I think is that one, then, you think is something where, yeah, you, you rewatch that finale and you're just like, oh, this is not going to end well.
0: <laughs> yeah, and we'll get into Jamie and our season seven predictions in a bit. But uh, how do you think this season ranks overall in terms of all the seasons so far?
1: It's tricky because I, I think I really rank season two and maybe season three are almost even for me, uh, just as far as being like the absolute best that the show could do. And it's hard in a way because the show back then, I mean, even in season three, it was so much. Smaller is the wrong word, although it was that. It was just able to focus a little bit more. This is high up there for me, James. Right now, this for me is kind of right underneath those two seasons. Only because, like, the awesomeness of the last couple of episodes of season six uh, kind of run right up against the fact that, you know, this was the second season in a row where Arya was kind of dilly-dallying with the Faceless Men. And you know, th- th- there was still a lot of chess piece moving in this season that sort of holds it back for me from being right up there. But that being said, I mean, the last three episodes, I, I think those were as good as the show has ever been, honestly. I- that-, that kind of sequence and how it kind of built and and where it left us. This, to me, feels like a show that is kind of, if not rediscovering its mojo, then certainly has gotten past a lot of the setup and is now kind of at the punchline.
0: To me, it's not even a question. I think this is the best season. I have loved it from pretty much the start. It's easy to forget that a lot of the earlier seasons really took a long time to get rolling. They would start uh, kind of slow and then kind of gather speed and momentum as they went. To me, the season opened with such a bang uh, with uh, the Red Woman episode, picking up where all the cliffhangers left off, went right into the Resurrection episode, and then you have this great reunion with Jon and Sansa, and then you have uh, mythological uh, flashbacks with Bran and his visions. Then you end it with these two amazing episodes. You you could say, well, there was a lot of fan-pleasing things in this season. It was sort of stacked probably with more... Things that made fans happy than if George R. R. Martin had written it himself, perhaps. I just think uh, the level of execution on the show keeps g- ratcheting upward, and they keep holding themselves to higher standards. So, what you're saying, James,
1: is the season where they had the most grey joys was your favorite season ever? That's very interesting. <laughs> Time for our favorite segment of the show, a little thing we like to call Dark Wings, Dark Words. (coughs) That's right. You have been sending in some awesome comments and theories. Let's start at the top. We have had a few questions about Bran. Uh, This comes from Mo. Uh, If and when Bran returns to Winterfell, where does he rank? Does he move ahead of Sansa because he's male? If they knew Jon's parentage, would he still have some rights since he is a Stark? Uh, All all kinds of questions focused on what happens when Bran Stark finally returns to Winterfell after his almost series-long trip way up north and then the other trip back down south. From what I could tell, when Bran returns to Winterfell... If we're following all the rules that were established at the beginning of the show, he would be the Lord of Winterfell. Um, After him, it would be his oldest natural sister, which would be Sansa. Then and only then could it ever be Jon. Obviously, there's been a lot of stuff thrown into that. I mean, I I do think, though, James, it's fair to say that, like, you know... Certain things have maybe been kind of thrown out uh, over the course of these last war-torn years in Westeros. I can't see Bran wanting to be Lord of Winterfell, and I can't necessarily see a lot of people saying that they want this thought-to-be-dead boy to take over from his badass warrior supposed half-brother. What's your read on the passage of power in Winterfell next season?
0: Well, first of all, I'm just so relieved to be sitting here not knowing anything for once, because I was on the uh, set of season six back in October. And so normally when we're doing this podcast... And we get to speculation, you're like going, oh, I think Rickon will take over Winterfell. And I'm all, oh, that's really interesting. But now I can like freely speculate and and, and I'm free to be as every bit as wrong about what's going to happen next as everybody else. So in terms of brand, uh, you know. Yes, I think you're correct, but I think it's going to be a moot point. My prediction is, is he's not going to be interested in ruling Winterfell. His life has gotten so much weirder than merely ruling a house in Westeros. I, I think it's going to be up to other things, and if presented with that uh, option, I think he would probably leave it to uh, Sansa or Jon.
1: This does bring up one question, though, which I'd I, I, I be treated to know what you think about this, which is... What is the actual plot effect of Bran knowing who Jon Snow's real parents are? I mean, like, it doesn't seem like that's something he's going to announce loudly to the world. That doesn't seem like something that is information he would want out there. It seems more like it's something that he may tell Jon and, and Sansa, and that might affect them. Um, but like you know, a lot of people are saying now, oh, like you know, since John isn't Ned Stark's son, then he won't be allowed to be king of the North. And it's it's hard for me to imagine the North thinking that way.
0: Right. Well, it's also a little bit of the matter of proof. I mean, how do you verify this exactly? I mean, there's no real paternity test in Westeros. So whenever we learn something about someone's parentage, it's always a, a bit of a question of well how how is that established to anyone beyond the viewers.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, And here quickly, James, let's just deviate to say that there have been a lot of people who emailed us, who tweeted at us uh, with their big theory that uh, although John's mother we have learned her identity, that his father is not Rhaegar Targaryen, that his father is, in fact, Robert Baratheon. I had never heard this before this week, and many of you uh, sort of said that you were kind of theorizing that Robert Baratheon was his father. I believe that theory has now officially been put to bed, right, James? Like, like HBO has sort of soft confirmed that he is, in fact, half Targaryen.
0: Yeah, uh, HBO's official making of Game of Thrones website uh, put up an infograph where it, it was like a family tree in- infograph and just linked uh, Rhaegar as Jon Snow's father. So that pretty much seals that up. It was a little bit vague in the way the scene was shot. You think it's Rhaegar. You assume it's Rhaegar, but you don't know for sure. And now it seems like uh, that is definitely – for sure.
1: If there was a mystery, you could say that the mystery is what is Jon Snow's real name, which seems like something that is still kind of up in the air, but I, I, it's fair to say his lineage has been solved, and what that means for the future is something that will be interesting. James, while we're talking our predictions for next season, one of my favorite things that came at us the last few days, this came uh, to us on Twitter from at Thundie08. She said, Hey guys, where do you think Danny will land first in Westeros? This is a great question because this will this will change everything next season. What do you what do you think, James?
0: Yeah, it's a huge question. Uh, I immediately want to say Cape Kraken just because I you know, that sounds really fun to say. Um, I think the one thing that we can be sure about is that I don't think she'll land at King's Landing. And the reason in the show will be potentially something like Tyrion will go, hello, there's this thing called Battle of the Blackwater and, and it didn't turn out very well. Don't make that mistake. Uh, alternately, it could be because first she has to go to the Iron Islands to fulfill her agreement to Yara. But I think the real reason is it will allow the show to delay the big confrontation to come. I mean, she just rolls up to King's Landing. Uh, the, you know They're going to take the Red Keep in 30 seconds, given the amount of her forces versus what Cersei has. As a viewer, I want to see what Cersei ruling Westeros is like. I want to kind of have that play out. So if Danny lands someplace else first, it allows us to have this new level of King's Landing palace intrigue with Cersei in charge. And at the same time, it allows Danny to go into another part of Westeros, uh, either have a fight there or get settled there and potentially meet somebody over at Winterfell. Who knows?
1: I guess really deep down, the main question here is, does she go north or does she go south? My sense is I kind of think she'll go south, and the two reasons I think that are there is some basis for this in the books, which I realize is now a foolhardy thing to say, since uh, tragically I'm not sure that Young Griff is a name that anyone who watches this show is going to have to learn anytime soon. I also just think that like given the storytelling on this show, there's something really poetic to the idea of there is another King of the North and the North is now kind of in, in, in a state of outright rebellion. You have Cersei, you know, right in kind of like the middle of the map at King's Landing. You know, Euron and his fleet are somewhere around the water. It feels like it almost kind of makes a certain amount of strategic sense to go south, join with Dorne, shore up all the lands down there. Dorne is, is also right next to the uh, Tyrell household and Highgarden. So I'm betting she she lands in Dorne and then they leave Dorne. And that's the last time we ever see
0: Dorne. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, especially with her newfound uh, alliance with Dorne, uh, that would make uh, probably the most sense for her to land there.
1: We had just enough narrative real estate this season with Euron. That it's clear that like he factors into this show's, if not end game, then almost the end game, in a way that you know we only kind of got the beginnings of this year. H- how do you think he fits in? How do you think he fits in with Danny uh, in the next season of the show?
0: How Yaron fits in is definitely a really tricky question. Uh, I don't think we have many clues as to which way that's going to go. I do wonder if the conversation with Yara. Where Danny gets her to agree that the Ironborn have to change their way of life, whether that's going to come back to bite her when they end up conflicting with him, and uh, you know if she tries to get the, uh, the 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 Ironborn on her side. One thing that might make sense is the idea of you're on joining forces with Cersei in the whole enemy of my enemy is is my friend sort of theorizing. Uh, could he, once he realizes that Danny's a lost cause, go to King's Landing and offer uh, Danny his forces, and that way it gives uh, Cersei some more troops, other than just the uh, stabby street urchins?
1: I like that idea too. I mean, like it seems to make the most sense only in so far as like Cersei. She is now queen, and yet, like, the power of the Iron Throne seems to... It's hard to say that it's ever been weaker. I mean, when when you are literally taking control by exploding the religious center of your country and killing lots of other people, like, you know, you're... It's at the point where the snake is eating its own tail. And so I do wonder if it makes a certain amount of sense for her to seek uh, assistance from him. I mean, I will say, too, I mean... While we were recording this podcast this season, there was a chapter released from The Winds of Winter, which was sort of about the kind of Greyjoy side of things. And what we learned about Euron there was sort of bonkers, and it makes it seem as if he may be, if not like the big bad of the books, then he is certainly someone who, in George R. R. Martin's vision, he is someone who plays in to a huge extent in the finale. I don't know that that's a spoiler because I honestly can't imagine that the show is seeing him that way, but it'll be interesting to see how that kind of uh, plays out. Again, I'm, I'm really hoping if they can just do just, just one episode, James, that's basically the movie Master and Commander in Westeros. That's all I ask. Moving on down through the mailbag, here's my favorite of all time. From Patrick Stewart, he assures us that's his real name. In the finale, Arya is at the Twins and takes out Walder Frey. Looking at a map of Westeros, the Twins are basically the halfway point between King's Landing and Winterfell. Does Arya head north and get back to her home, or does she head south and take out Cersei and Zombie Mountain?
0: There's story logic and there's logic logic, and... In this world that Jon Snow and Sansa had reclaimed Winterfell, that word would travel really fast. So as she's leaving the twins, uh, she would pick up that information pretty quickly. She would also know that Cersei's now queen. I would think she would go home. I mean, even if she's totally hell bent on killing Cersei, I would think she would go home next and what uh, how amazing would it be if season 7 opened with arya at the gates of winterfell uh looking to come in it's like you know thanks for the sword john it came in handy
1: a lot of this honestly comes down to how dark you think arya's storyline will go um i i tend to prefer when things go way dark and i truly think that like A, I'm not sure she even thinks about her family anymore. I I think as far as she's concerned, they're all dead and even upon hearing it they're alive, I'm not sure that her first instinct would be to go to them. I think she's very much in that kind of like revenge spiral now and I, she's kind of aiming to take some more people off her list. And it just so happens that two of those people are in King's Landing.
0: Though on the other hand, the entire arc of Arya this season was about her reclaiming uh, who she was and her identity as a Stark. Uh, so there's that too. James, while we're on the topic of where are
1: people going next season, uh, on Twitter, at albedo777 tweeted at us, uh, quote, seemed like a lackluster end to Melisander. Will she bring back Lady Stoneheart? Hashtag Hope Springs Eternal.
0: Why would she want to bring back Caitlin Stark? I mean, she doesn't even know Caitlin Stark. Why would she hunt down Caitlin Stark's body that at this point has to be really de- decomposed only to bring her back. I mean, aside from wanting to make fans of A Storm of Swords, like, really happy.
1: And even, even those fans, and I'm certainly one of them, uh, I, I recognize that things have probably advanced beyond that, and Beric Dondarian is still alive, after all. Um, I mean, that seems like something that we might not pick up with immediately, James. Like, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, like, I'm not sure she takes a full brand season five break, but it wouldn't surprise me if Melisandre kind of disappears in the show for a while, then reappears somewhere, but where do you think she reappears? She's got a few different options for where she could wind up now.
0: Well, I mean, her options seem to be going south. They were pretty specific on what direction she was supposed to go. Who knows if she listened or not. But that seems to be a clue. You know, you could think Dorne. You could think, uh, you know, King's Landing. I don't know why she would want to go to either of those. It's it's those. It's definitely a, a good question.
1: My only guess, because... There was such a big flourish earlier this season around the introduction of the Red Priestess in Marine and that kind of alliance that took place between the followers of the red god and danny and and with that this sort of long term assumption that you know if there is in fact just one ruler who the red god's followers have been anticipating that perhaps that is Danny, that seems to point her in a certain direction, but even then you know it's hard to say. Does she go straight to Dorne? That seems like it would take a long time, although who knows? Um, you know, does she? So I, 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 my sense is that we've seen the last of her for a little while, but not the last of her uh, forever. One last question, James, that uh, really speaks more, I think, to a lot of our predictions for next season. Uh, from Nivea Mercado. Uh, we've had battle scenes every year, some clearly on a larger scale than others. Assuming that the larger battle against the White Walkers gets saved for the end, meaning season eight, what do you expect to serve as the great battle of season seven. James Hibbard, what's the big battle going to be?
0: Do we need to have a big battle in season seven? I mean, if there's the great battle that we know is going to be in season eight, absolutely, there'll be a great big battle in season eight. It could be that this is the build up to that. I mean, so we might not have one unless we have some great sea battle with uh, Iran versus... uh, versus Danny. that's one way, way, way to spend that extra money.
1: My prediction for how A Song of Ice and Fire ends has obviously changed, you know, so much over the last few years. It, it, it's only changed more as we've gotten, like, less to go off of. What I've always kind of thought, and this has more to do with how George R. R. Martin writes his stories than necessarily how the show has translated them, is He seems like he's someone who, when it comes to Lord of the Rings, what he really likes is the scouring of the Shire. And what he really likes is this notion that, you know, after the big fantasy battle, there is a long and very human aftermath that is not as binary, good and evil, but that is maybe more interesting on a human level. So my... My theory has always kind of been that the White Walker versus dragon battle that we kind of naturally assume is the very cinematic end of this story. Sometimes I wonder, James, if the White Walkers, if they're actually kind of like the final, the, the, the last level boss before the final boss, that like, you know, what we're building up to in the north is a kind of showdown between the forces of accumulated good, you know, whether that's you know John and the Wildlings and Danny and the dragons and the Iron Islands fleet. Whether that's you know John and other people, you know that 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 is kind of that that is maybe a big battle scene in season seven or at the very beginning of season eight. You know, a- after that there is still so much to do, and maybe one, if not one last battle, then one last sort of siege, like a siege of King's Landing or something like that, and and that that is kind of the ultimate finale. That's kind of my half-assed theory, you know. I think that sounds
0: right. I mean, I feel like. The final conflict in the show will be a human one rather than a supernatural one, I would think. And But it's just a matter of whether that's a season seven thing that happens or a season eight thing that happens. And I have a hard time seeing them resolve the entire White Walker, Night King threat in season seven, then having a whole other season to go after that. I mean, that would surprise me, but who knows? I mean, it could be right. We got a couple different questions, one from Nigel, one from Molly, about the future of Jamie and Cersei's relationship. What's that even going to be like uh, given everything that we've seen so far? And my prediction is that season seven is going to suck for Jamie. His brother's coming back on the side of Danny and the dragons and Sullied. You have Cersei probably going to be going power mad and doing some terrible things. Uh, He's got Brienne on the side of John. Um, You know, he said a couple times in the series so far in the pilot and this last season, the things you do for love. My prediction for season seven or season eight is he's going to have to kill somebody he loves. It's just a question of who is that going to be?
1: I think you're right there, James. I mean, I I just think that you know he is someone who is maybe becoming more aware of the fact that he is in a tragedy, and and that and that it's a tragedy that no one he loves, including himself, will get out okay, or or, or will even get out alive. To me, the only real question is, I mean. Between the three Lannister... I'll I'll call them Lannister kids, even though they certainly are are not children. The three children of of Tywin Lannister, I could believe any of them killing each other right now. Like, I could believe Jaime sort of, you know, killing Tyrion for Cersei. I could believe Tyrion killing Cersei. There's there's so much kind of pent-up stuff there. I could believe Cersei killing either of them. I could believe any of them, frankly, kind of killing themselves. The one thing I do kind of think that makes me very uh, unsteady going into this next season is Tyrion alone among his siblings it feels like he kind of has everything he wanted. I mean, you know, certainly not. He's been through so much, and he's done a lot of horrible things, but all he's ever really wanted deep down is, I think, respect and acknowledgement, and the fact that this season ends with him being named officially The Hand, and, you know, what that means for him and his history since, you know, his best moments as a as a person and as, as a tactician and a, as a cerebral thinker were when he was hand back in season two he is on such a high right now and it seems like things could only get worse for him so i i'm not sure any of them kind of wind up alive at the end of all of this but yeah i I think you're definitely right that i'm not sure jamie has had any good years lately but next year is definitely not going to be his first good year (laughs) And that wraps it up for this first season of the EW Game of Thrones weekly podcast. Uh, We'll try to do some special episodes between now and next season. There's obviously no shortage of Game of Thrones related stuff to talk about throughout the long winter between seasons. Uh, But thank you to everybody who listened and went on this journey with us. Uh, Thank you to our editor, Jenna Weiss-Berman, who makes it sound like we don't stutter every two seconds. Uh, I certainly do. Uh, Thank you to our producer, Christina Everett. Thank you most of all to my co-host, James Harris. Everybody out there, if you've enjoyed listening to this, know that each week James was usually recording this after about 13 straight hours of writing and interviewing and doing lots of other incredible Game of Thrones-related stuff. You can find all of that on EW.com. Since I started that last sentence, I think he's written two more things and published them about Game of Thrones while we're at it thank you to everyone involved in game of thrones what a fun show to talk about we've had so much fun we'll continue to have fun and thank you most of all to george r r martin the man who created all of this Uh, i'm darren franich thanks for listening everybody Let me hit you with this though, James. I was in that scene kinda like, wait a second, I kinda think Sansa Sansa oh god damn it, fucking pronunciation. (laughs) Just kidding.